Milwaukee, August 30th, 1995. The body of 16-year-old Jessica Payne is found lying behind a row of vacant houses in a Northside Milwaukee neighborhood. 21-year-old Shante Ott was soon tried and convicted of the murder. A murder, it would be found out. He did not commit. As newly discovered DNA evidence freed Shante Ott from prison, a link was now found between nine other unsolved murders of young women in the same Milwaukee neighborhood. Over a 21-year period, the same Milwaukee neighborhood was terrorized by one single serial killer. The North Side Milwaukee Strangler. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode four, Mickey, of Badger Bazaar. Come a long way. Come a long way up to the old gunslinger, right? <laughs> yep. Bob, number four. So the other thing is we are live now for the first time. We are published and uh, we are real people. <laughs> we don't even play actors on TV here. Right, we are now legitimate podcasters. We do not stay at a Holiday Inn. <laughs> we actually do have uh, our podcast live now. We've been published for uh, a little over a week now, almost two weeks. But you know, when we started doing this, when Mickey and I started doing this, we wanted to give uh, a couple episodes as a, I guess, a, a preview. You know, we wanted to have a, a few episodes under our belt. Uh, before we did put it out to the world, so you had a pretty decent example of exactly what we were doing here because we knew once you hear one you need to have more immediately you were definitely going addiction hooked yes so we we know you're out there so thank you all very much you know it took us you kind of got to be out there to be listening to this right we do know that there are people listening now so it took us a a little over a day to get our first hundred downloads and i have no idea what the numbers are what the average is on that but that sounds pretty good to me and now we are let's just say we're well over 100 downloads and well into the hundreds of downloads now. So and we haven't even done a lot of promoting on our own. Right. Anything, so. a, a lot of this, again, thank you, is, is has been word of mouth, basically. You like us. You really like us. So it's uh, it's starting to roll. And, and uh, you know, thank you guys so much. Again, 
social media is out there. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Um, all of our contact info is around. Just search for us, Badger Bazaar, and uh, and you'll be sure to to find us. So because we're doing this because we. You know, we're longtime buddies, and most of our lives we've known each other. But we we get into some heavy conversations, and we've always been able to do that. This is a nice subject matter that hasn't really been broached a whole lot, so it was just kind of a nice way to for us to be able to hang out and get these stories out that a lot of people don't know much about. I think, as as we stated in the first episode, when you when you get into this kind of darker history of Wisconsin, there's stuff out there, but it always it always leaves you wanting a little more. Right. You know, so I think that's. That's kind of the vacuum that we're trying we're trying to fill with this. So so stay tuned. You know we have a lot of things in the hopper. We have things going. Hopefully we have appearances uh, coming up later uh, this summer. And speaking of that, there's a book launch I heard about. There is a book launch coming up. Actually, this weekend. Yeah. Alrighty, it'll be this weekend, Saturday, April twenty third, at the Dairyland Brew Pub um, in Appleton. I have my second book. Uh, is coming out. It's actually coming out on April 25th, and it's called Finding Dairyland, and it's about, you know, kind of the dairy crisis that we find ourselves in right now. It's a little synopsis of how we became known as the dairy state, which was out of necessity. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's not a comprehensive history, but it talks about how we gained an identity and how we're kind of losing that identity now. 200,000 or so family-run dairy farms, World War II era, and now here we are in 2020, and we're looking at barely 6,000 dairy farms remaining in the state. So, you know, it's a heritage that we take a lot of pride in, that we've built from the ground up. And, you know, it's kind of the story of how we're we're kind of grasping to save that. Well, so. we're known as America's Dairyland, which is our plan words, America's scary land. I mean, like you say, it's a dying industry, so our identity is even, you know, kind of up for question because of it all it's a dying industry in terms of being able to to run a family business around right, it right yeah, that's what i mean yeah, yeah. and uh, again it's i it's our identity it has been for it's on our license plates years, even for god's right sake. yeah you know so and it's very it's something very personal to me i married in actually to a dairy family i didn't know anything about dairy farming on my own but my in-laws are dairy farmers and uh it was kind of uh, it's kind of my tribute to them. It's kind of my, uh, you know, how how I was able to connect with with that part of the family that I'm unfamiliar with. So come out, come out uh, Saturday, April 23rd in Appleton, 1216 East Wisconsin Avenue at the Dairyland Brew Pub. So Mickey will be there. That's the best part of it all. Oh, yeah. That's why everybody's going to show up. The whole Badger Bazaar crew will be there. So come along and uh, let's talk about some Badger Bazaar. That's a nice place. It's a nice venue. There's good beer and food there too, but I don't want to brag about my connections, but I already have an autographed copy of the book. So They're starting to come out ever more plentiful now <laughs> as advanced copies Struggling. are s- starting, to, uh, starting to appear. So, uh, you know, I hope you read it. If you can't make it, obviously, to Appleton, the book will be available pretty much everywhere books are sold in the state starting Monday, April 25th. You can also buy it anywhere online. I looked it up on Amazon, and it was so quick. It pops up immediately. It's available for pre-order right now. Again, it's called Finding Dairyland in Search of Wisconsin's Vanishing Heritage. Very affordable price, too. $21.99, I believe it's listed at right now. So as we move on to, to Badger Bazaar couple of tidbits in the news that I think we should mention. One, obviously, uh, goes back to the last podcast we had when we talked about Taylor Shabiznis, who um, 
is charged with the mutilation death of her partner after a, in the words of most news articles that you read about this, a meth-fueled sex romp. If you haven't heard about that, go back and listen to episode three, and we talk a little bit about it. But she has, just this week, been found competent to stand trial. International news, so you probably... It is international You may have news. heard of it already. It's a, it's a big story. It's a salacious story, you know, so yeah. it's not it's not like stories like this don't happen elsewhere, but for whatever reason we have a knack. When Wisconsin when this kind of stuff happens in Wisconsin, the international outlets seem to pounce a little bit. And we I mean seems like we're known for this for some reason. We were reason. suggesting that it happens, you know, every day. This is an over top over the top kind of case, which is why we even mentioned it on on the podcast, but yeah, it's it's definitely strange and bizarre. I mean, even for our sick, twisted minds, it caught our attention. So it doesn't happen every day, but it, when it does, it seems to have roots to Wisconsin. You know, just when you when you read about something or you hear about something where somebody left a human head in a bucket for their mother to find, uh, it's going to catch your attention. Yeah, you know. But again, she she has a you know quote infatuation like appreciation for serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, so obviously she was, uh, emulating him to some extent. I've been getting the willies for five straight minutes. So yeah, it, it, this story will have an effect on you. You know, it, it came through also in, in, you know, when she was found competent that, uh, they were talking to some of the police officers that made the arrest and, or at least were interrogating her. And she said that the police would quote, have fun trying to find all of the organs that she had apparently spread around. The premises. The well, premises, as a matter so. of fact, as she was about everything, as we've already talked about, so we don't need to go to, into too much more detail. But she, she said she was lazy. Just how, like, poignant she was about it. Just like there's no remorse. She's just talking about it like she's talking about somebody else. So, yeah, you got to figure there's something going on there. The mentally. I think one one of the most amazing things to me about this is she did this with a serrated bread knife. Like we're not we're not talking about chainsaws. No, you're we're devoted. Not, we're not talking about hacksaws. Right. We're talking about a serrated bread knife. Yeah, that's I that she found in a kitchen. It's not going to be that easy to use. So you're really dedicated to the process if you're doing that. And moving on, you know, the, the I think the, a, a really big story that just hit, and not, some of this is starting to, um, some of the news for this is actually still breaking. We're still finding out about this, but it's about the the Brooklyn subway mass shooter which happened earlier this week, just a couple days ago, where somebody threw smoke bombs in a subway car in Brooklyn, right? In a crowded subway car, threw smoke bombs down, created this huge cloud, and started shooting uh, indiscriminately at everybody. And it turns out that, um, you know, lo and behold, where else, he was from, or actually he lived in, Right here in Milwaukee. There's so, roots to Wisconsin. Right. He's got an address in Milwaukee, and he bought the smoke bombs at Phantom Fireworks, which I have shopped at quite a bit, right, actually. So, uh, yep. Especially the one in Hartford, but he bought these apparently in Racine County. And, uh, you know, the most, to me, the most bizarre thing about this case is that he fired off 33 shots, shot 10 people, injured 13. I think there were some people that were trampled um, or they got... Um, hit with smoke inhalation. Some like there was what seven or eight that were like, bullet wounds. Ten. There, oh, there were, were ten, ten people that okay. were shot, but none of these people fired off thirty-three shots in a crowded subway car. None of them have life-threatening wounds, which is miraculous Amazing. to me. Right. I can't imagine that. Yeah. You know, this is a this is a subway car where people are, you know, an arm length away, you know, almost point blank, 
and nobody out of the people that were shot had a life-threatening injury. They're all gonna they're all gonna survive. I mean, these cars aren't more than a hundred feet long. If the, I mean, I don't even think they're that long. So, yeah, if you're in the middle of the car, you got good range at everybody in it. And granted, he was his vision was blurred too because of the smoke bombs. But still, just on accident, you think you'd have done more damage. Which so not, thank God you didn't. But. Not only did ten people not sustain life-threatening injuries, the gun jammed. He had 57 rounds ready to go. It was a lot more damage to come. Uh, yeah, and the gun jammed, and he stopped shooting. It's almost like the hand of God coming down in that situation. It's it's very miracle-y. Right. I guess I don't know what that word miracle-y, is. Miracle-y, yeah. <laughs> now we're, we coined America's scary land, and now we're going with miracle-y. miracle-y. These are our terms. That's right. Mark it down. <laughs> so, um, you know, thank thank God that, you know, none of these people were hurt. But it just seems that every time these 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 stories pop up, good old Badger State's got some kind of connection to it, which is... Uh, if it's dark and twisted. Hence the reason Mickey and I are sitting here right now. <laughs> so the Milwaukee Northside Strangler. Walter Ellis. And I got to admit, when, when Mickey actually um, threw this out there as, as a topic, I didn't know about this. And, you know, I think we're, we're going to get into talking a little bit about, I think there might be a reason for that. You know, why this, this case didn't really see the light, at least statewide. I'm sure it did in Milwaukee, obviously, but statewide, as, as a lot of other cases like this, I think, normally would have. This guy's just kind of gone off the radar with all that he did. So th- this is a case that, you know, obviously this will be in the true true crime realm of, of what we do. This story kind of starts on August 30th, 1995, when the body of 16-year-old Jessica Payne was found behind a vacant house in a north side Milwaukee neighborhood. Uh, her pants were pulled down to her ankles and her throat was slit, which caused her to bleed out. So when the succeeding investigation of the murder... She's a 16-year-old runaway, for the record, too. 16-year-old. You know, she'd be a, a high school sophomore, going to be a junior, found with her throat cut outside, lying behind a vacant house in Milwaukee. So in, in the investigation that resulted from the death, two men were questioned. And I would imagine there were a lot of people questioned. But two men in particular that were questioned um, in the death, Richard Gwynn and Sam Hadaway. You know, and I think since we found this, I have a hard time reading Sam Hadaway without thinking of what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. We even bring music and singing to our podcast. By the artist known as Hadaway. <laughs> so two men that were questioned at the time, Richard Gwynn and Sam Hadaway, said that they, during questioning, said that they, along with a third friend, Shante Ott, picked up Jessica Payne at, at I think, a convenience store. And there was surveillance video of pain getting in a car with three people the three people are you're not able to see who they are so whether this actually was them i think is still up for debate but the two men said you know gwyn and hadaway said that that was them and jessica Payne got in the car with them along with their friend shante ott who were not much older than pain i think hadaway was 19 or 20 at the time notably he was cognitively and physically disabled so right I mean, he was probably somewhat easily influenced. And Ott and Gwyn, I think, were in their early 20s at the time. So Payne, 16, 
the men in, in their 20s. Um, so they were, they were driving around, driving around Milwaukee, doing what you do, kids that age do. Now, according to Hathaway and Gwynn, they testified that after a while of driving around, they devised a plan, and their plan was going to be to rob her, a 16-year-old runaway. They're going to rob her. Because she then, must have so much on right, her after right? all. Right, Like, why wouldn't she be loaded? Right, yeah. Um, they're going to rob her, and then Ott wanted to sexually assault her. So that, that was the testimony of these two men. So according to Hathaway and Gwynn, they did rob Jessica Payne, and then when they found out she had no money, shocker, <laughs> um, Ott got upset. He, was, he wanted to, obviously, sexually assault her, and in the midst of a fight or a struggle, uh, wound up cutting her throat and killing her. So Ott was obviously arrested after these two men pointed the finger at him. They put him on trial. Basically with just the testimony of Hathaway and Gwynn. And he was convicted. Shantae Ott was convicted of the death of Jessica Payne. Hathaway himself got five years for the robbery. Gwynn got nothing. Hathaway agreed to a plea. He pled guilty to armed robbery and testified against Ott and served five years in prison. He did his full service. He did his full five years. Gwynn got nothing, apparently, but Ott got life in prison for the murder of Jessica Payne. And this was in 1995 that he was sent to prison for the rest of his life. So in 2002, the Wisconsin Innocence Project picked up his case because Ott himself never confessed to anything, never admitted guilt to anything. He apparently was offered a plea deal, whereas if he would confess to the murder, that he would serve a 10-year sentence and be out. I don't know how that would be, and I think they would change the charge probably, but they offered him a 10-year sentence in return for a full confession, and he declined it. Which is testament to his, the innocence in his own mind. Right. You know, in his mind, he didn't, he didn't do this murder, so he wasn't going to, you know, confess that he did. So the Wisconsin Innocence Project in 2002 asked for new DNA testing. They did have seminal fluid from the body of, of Jessica Payne. Um, and because of the advancements in DNA technology from really when it first started to be used in 1986. Here we're only in, in 1995, so they did have the fluid in 1995. But apparently the technology wasn't there enough, I guess. DNA was a part of their... They were starting to get into that technology and using it on trial, but it wasn't fully in the works yet. So in 2002, the Wisconsin Innocence Project asked for further DNA testing on the fluid that was taken from Payne's body. And in 2008, and I don't know why this always takes so long, but it seems like it does. Yeah. So 2008, Ott's already been in prison for 13 years. But in 2008, this testing comes back as conclusively not a match for Shantae Ott, Sam Hathaway, or Richard Gwynn. None of the three matched the DNA sample that was found inside of Payne's genitals. Right. So it was, however, a match for two other women who were found murdered in the same neighborhood a decade apart. So Joyce Mims was found murdered in 1997, and we Theron Stokes was found murdered just houses away. Both of them Payne strangled. Both strangled. Whereas the first, Jessica Payne, was stabbed, so that's where... A big hang-up was... Right. So in, up to seven other women, so 10 total, were found murdered in the same two-mile vicinity. So the same neighborhood all had the same DNA of the same perpetrator. And none of these people were Ott, Hathaway, or Gwynn. So now Milwaukee knew that they had a serial killer on their hands. They did, they did as, as Mickey alluded to, they did have a lot of 
similar murders happen. But the police were never comfortable saying this was one person. Understandably, no one, they would never want to admit they have a serial killer on their hands because that's when panic happens in the public. They had to figure that this girl, Jessica Payne, wouldn't have been raped by one party or person and then killed by another. So that that had to be a big hang-up, as I've read it. I mean, that's just impossible, essentially. Prosecutors, because of of what you said, Mickey, the the victimology was different. Nine of the other women, nine out of the ten women, were African-American sex sex workers, thought to be sex workers. Jessica Payne was white. Jessica Payne was white and was not a sex worker. So that's why it was hard to lump her in. So, you know, right, because of that different victimology, you know, I, I read all the way up until 2018 that prosecutors still believe that Ott did this killing, but any, and they wanted to keep him in prison even when the DNA came back as not his, but the first court of appeals in, in Madison said no. There's no evidence. Obviously, there's no physical evidence that he did this. And also, the testimony that they got from Gwyn and Hathaway was recanted by both men. Not only was it recanted, uh, the testimony, they said, was coerced. Now, as what Mickey said before, Hathaway was physically and cognitively compromised, disabled. Right. So maybe easily influenced. He was, he had cerebral palsy, epilepsy, and traumatic brain injury. So you think he could have been intimidated fairly easily? And And Right. And according to what he said afterwards, he said that the police basically told him he if he doesn't point the finger at Ott, that he himself is going to prison for the rest of his life. And the same with Gwyn. Right, and I, I might be convinced by that. Sure. If I think, oh my God, I'm going to get busted for this, I'm going to take the least sentence I can get, you know? Sure, and this isn't only their, you know, new testimony. This is also the the, the court, the first court of appeals agreeing with them, saying that not only is there no evidence that Ott committed this murder, there's no physical evidence, and the testimony was not only recanted, but likely coerced. That Ott had to be left out of prison, and at least he at least was was afforded a new trial. This interrogation went on for days for these guys. Right, too. it wasn't until the third day that Hathaway sounds like he relented, just and he finally said, "Okay, right, yeah. just get off me." And again, th- these are this is something that we've we've seen before. Right, you know, we've seen it up here um, in you know closer to where we are in Manitowoc County with the the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey case. We've seen it in the West Memphis Three case with Jesse Kelly, which is a very famous uh, still cold case today. So, you know, coerced testimony is a problem. Certainly looks like it happened here. And we had a man, innocent man, who went to prison and lost 13 years of his life um, by a bit of a rush to judgment by a police department. On Hathaway five years himself. And Hathaway five years himself. So now, you know, Milwaukee knows they have a serial killer on their hands. They have 10 dead women all with the same DNA found on their body. In the same general vicinity. In the same two-mile radius. Um, so, But they didn't know. They just All they did was have a DNA sample. They did not yet. They didn't know who the DNA sample was from, so they didn't have a suspect. But the victims here, I'm going to run down the victim names here, I think because a lot of the coverage at the time, and again, this is something that I, I, I have looked at recently, but a lot of the coverage at the time kind of dismisses the victims themselves. For a few reasons that are speculated by family and victims, right. obviously. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about, you know, I think the undertones are pretty clear here. Sure. And we'll get into that a little more later. And may still be in place today. No doubt. But, you know, it, it looks like this serial killer was in play from 1986 all the way up to 2007. 
at least in the ones that we know. Tanya Miller, 19, found in 1986, behind a house and garage, strangled. Deborah Harris, 31, found in 1986, floating in the Menominee River with a handkerchief around her neck. Irene Smith, 29, found in 1992, strangled in an alley. Sheila Farrier, 37, 1995, found in a bedroom of an abandoned house. By an inspector remodeling, doing remodeling work, he just came across her body. Right. Somebody, All these buildings are abandoned. That's the Somebody refurbishing point. an abandoned house finds her basically in a closet with her bra around her neck. Strangled. Different ages, too, you'll notice. I mean, they were going from teenagers up into early to mid-30s. And then Joyce was Older than that, yeah. Right. Florence McCormick, 28, found in 1985 in a basement of an abandoned house with a clothesline around her neck. By workers doing repairs. The home was, the home was boarded up and there was a broken window. That's how they got in. Joyce Mims, uh, Joyce Mims, 41, found in 1997 on the second floor of an abandoned home, naked in a closet. You see a theme here? Right. She was last seen by her family two days earlier, just walking from her house. And again, found by construction workers, renovators that were just going in to perform renovations on another abandoned building. We Theron Stokes, 28, uh, found in 2007, strangled in an abandoned house, just how, just a few houses away from where Jessica Payne was found. City inspectors found her going to a vacant, boarded-up residence, which had been used as rooming house previously. So, yeah, it's all it's all inspectors going through these abandoned buildings and coming across these bodies that may have been there for days. Karen Kilpatrick, 34, 1994, found nude in a garbage dump. And Marietta Griffin, 39, found in 1998, strangled, um, again, among abandoned houses. So all of them African-American, all of them suspected to be sex workers by the police department, although the families dispute that. All of them from or knew to be in this two-mile radius area, with the exception of Jessica Payne. Again, that's the outlier. And you could see why the police were um, hesitant to, to, to lump her in with this same man, because she doesn't fit fully the victimology of the rest of the victims, but... Or how she was slayed, even. Crimes of opportunity don't always fit that right. victimology, you know. Since 1986, there was a serial killer on the loose in Milwaukee, and it seems that all of these happening in the same uh, neighborhood, the residents kind of knew there was a serial killer on the loose. People were scared, people were talking about it, but the Milwaukee Police Department didn't want to fully endorse that speculation yet. And it dragged on, and it dragged on for 21 years. And then finally in 2009, after really not getting anywhere, the Milwaukee Police Department put together a task force. You know, after the first two deaths in 1986, finally in 2009, they finally put together a task force to find this person, and they, they brought in Lieutenant Keith Ballish, who was an investigator on the Dahmer case, obviously also in Milwaukee. And they started pulling DNA profiles from various people. And again, their hesitance to want to declare or announce a serial killer is understandable. Even at that time and nowadays, they just never want to have to be dealing with that kind of psycho. But once they did, they've got some experts in and it didn't take them long to chase them down. So in order to do that, when they put the, when they put the task force together, they, they started pulling, pulling DNA samples from people. And they were getting, you know, they would get names from anybody, basically. Tipsters, witnesses neighbors, 
somebody saying, hey, check this person out. So they would get DNA samples from people, obviously people who were incarcerated, who, who they thought might have had um, a play in this stuff. And they were coming up with nothing. And then finally, the name of Walter Ellis comes up, and they want a DNA sample from Walter Ellis. Walter Ellis was a known criminal in the area. He had been arrested several times. Twelve. In that area. He had been incarcerated before. Five years for reckless endangerment he was even in for beating a girlfriend with a hammer. So they wanted his DNA, and they, he obviously he kept throwing, Ellis kept throwing issues in there that they weren't able to get his DNA. And finally, they did set up a time to meet him and get his DNA, and he no-showed. So they got a warrant to go into his apartment when he wasn't there, and they got DNA from his toothbrush, and they had their man. About four weeks after setting up that task force, after 21 years of searching for somebody or searching for the perpetrator of these murders, four weeks after setting up a task force, they have their man. So now, you know, Ellis, when they went into his apartment, Ellis knew that they were on to him, so he tried, right, he tried to run. They did find him at a Franklin hotel, and I guess there was some kind of a struggle, but he obviously was subdued and brought in. Now the question becomes, why wasn't his DNA already on file? Twelve times he'd been arrested. When he was incarcerated. So in in 2000, the state of Wisconsin passed a law saying that any felon, any inmate convicted of a felony, had to have their DNA sampled. So Ellis was in prison from 1990. He was in prison a lot, really. But he was in prison from 1998 to 2001. But his sample was missing. So when they go to pull his DNA sample because he was a, a, a former inmate, it's not there. So why would that be? Well, it turns out the state's argument here is that they did have a DNA sample for Walter Ellis on file, but it wasn't his. So their um, argument is that Ellis actually put another inmate up to sample their DNA in his stead. Because he was becoming more and more knowledgeable and informed of the fact that they were using DNA. He was just becoming, like I said, more informed about the whole situation. So he was trying to be a few steps ahead of them by doing something like that is what their case is. Right. This man has an eighth grade education and he apparently was able to game the system. However, when it was determined or when it was found that his sample was missing, obviously there was an investigation put forth about why was his DNA sample missing. And it turns out a whole lot of people apparently put other people up to take their DNA in mm-hmm. their stead. Because 17,000 over. Well over. 17,000. Approaching 18,000. Inmate DNA samples were missing. So how did this happen? So he wasn't the only one doing that. But I also want to say that just because he lacked the education doesn't mean he's stupid. I mean, he did get away with this for a while. So there was some kind of psychointelligence or whatever you'd want to call it. Just because a criminal is not educated doesn't mean he can't figure out things how, how things work and how to get around them. No, it doesn't. But I guess in my take on that, and I could, you know, I could be fully wrong, but I'm also going to state my opinion that I'll allow it. You know, there, it doesn't add up for me. Oh right. You know they're 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 saying, oh, we did what we were supposed to do, but this guy um, punked us. Well, and as you said. There were many cases right. where other people were having other people give them their DNA. How does it explain the 17,000 oh, right. 17, inmates? 17,700 is what I read. 17,000 in, in a state, in, in nine years, right. right? From 2000 to 2009, in a state that's not very populous. has like no. two populous areas in it. That's outstanding. 17, 17 is that like every felon? I, it sure right? seems I like I mean, was, yeah. it was anybody's DNA sample, <laughs> and it kind of comes out. What the investigation found was no. You know, it just, it wasn't being done. Because according to the investigation, no system existed 
that allowed the Department of Justice, Corrections, and the Sheriff's Office to routinely share information. Prison officials and sheriffs did not coordinate on submissions from probationers and jail defenders. No one, no one, had final say on offender DNA collection. No single data source easily identified who owned samples, and many sheriff's offices don't have collection protocols. The report said... So basically, they passed a law in 2000 and said that we're going to do this and we're going to get these bad guys off the street, and nobody did anything about it. And again, it. It, like you say, it's early on, So, and I'm not trying to excuse anybody. Being a police officer is hard work. They have a lot of stuff they have to keep track of. We're not trying to say that even if there was some incompetence, there's a lot going on, so mistakes happen. They're still human beings. But these kind of numbers are outrageous. And again, it was early on in the stages of using DNA, but... That kind of number, there's a major, major flaw. And as we learned, this case alone made them, they had to go through the entire database and, and how the department was doing something. So this case alone, people had to die as a, as a result. At least something eventually good came from it because they went through and, and just clean clean slated the place because things were not being done right. Things weren't being done right. And, you know, and, and I want to talk about, I want to, I want to go back to my book here, dairy farming, farming in general. Right, very stressful uh, ordeal, very stressful and hard way of life, and we have an epidemic. We have for decades of farmers committing suicide, of farmers having massive mental health issues. We covered that in the Wisconsin death trip episode, even. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a hard life, right? And so again, there was an epidemic. There continues to be an epidemic of mental health issues in farming families because of the stress. So in 2008, you know, this obviously got the attention of Congress, and they passed a bill, and it was called the Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network Act. And this was a federal program that was supposed to help farmers all across the country with mental health issues, because they kept offing themselves, right? It sounds like a great deal. And it was a big deal when it was passed, and Congress was, you know, patting themselves on the back saying, look what we did. And it turns out that not one farmer was helped by that bill, because it was never funded. They passed the bill and forgot about it. Just more negligence. Or... Right? It was some kind of congressional page somewhere found, oh, look at this. This was passed 10 years ago. Maybe we should put some money in it. Well, it's just like we passed this bill to shut people up and we're never going to actually exactly. execute it. This is another example of a bill that's passed by Congress. And that's a definite possibility even in this case. Whether it's a, you know, whether it's a, a state legislature or Congress to appease activists. So, but Because it's either incompetence. And nobody taking the lead and putting this stuff in the database and doing it correctly. Or, like you said, they just never took it seriously. Like, we don't have to bother. How do you pass a bill like this? And then the Department of Justice never communicates, which was said by the report. This isn't my opinion. It was said by the report that the Department of Justice never communicated to, to counties how to do this. Like, DNA sampling inmates is a big deal. They, oh. they never talk to them about how to do it, how to catalog it to share it with, what database to put it in, nothing. Well, and to this day, that that's as big a piece of evidence as you can have. And this was this bill was passed in 2000, and this was found out in 2009. So again, almost a full decade of complete it. negligence. I don't right. want to say incompetence, because right. I don't believe that. I think it's purely... By choice. Pass the bill, forget about it. That's right. done. The media covered it. Let's move on to other things here. I just don't know which makes them look worse, though. Incompetence is human error. I mean, it, it's these numbers are just too big, in my opinion. And, you know, who am I to say anything? But it's almost worse if it was a choice. Either way, it's a horrible situation. The saddest thing is, is that if his sample was taken when it was supposed to have been, Witherian Stokes 
would still be alive today. Right. Because they would have caught him before he would have murdered her. So this did this cost lives? It sure did. At least. At least one. At that least we her know life and, and her loved ones. I mean, they're affected by that too. So it's more than just the one life. So who who is who is Walter Ellis? Who is this guy that you know was 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 given a moniker, was given a nickname by a Milwaukee TV station called the Milwaukee Northside Strangler? Like he's some kind of superhero, like he's deserving of that. Well, they eventually want, wanted to get away from that because international papers were using that, and they they thought it was a mistake. Born on June twenty fourth, nineteen sixty, in Holmes County, Mississippi, he was one of six children. Parents Leroy and Maddie Ellis, and in the mid-60s, they left Mississippi to transplant into Milwaukee. Growing up, he was a bully. He would attack kids all over the neighborhood and beat them up, terrorizing everyone. And uh, even one woman who was interviewed later on remembered him as a a youth. He was so full of rage. It was so noticeable. She wondered why he was never intervened with, why he was never, you know, taken aside and given therapy or help. And which is weird, later on, even as an adult, these same people who grew up with him and knew him as a terrorizing bully said he became a lot more gentle as an adult. Well, come to find out that he was just better at hiding it now. So, and that's, that's the same kind of case that usually happens with these serial killer types. They, they learn the practice. They take it out on often animals and roadkill. Eventually they get to the point where they're doing it to other human beings. So there, there's all kinds of quotes and stories that you can find by people who grew up with him. Neighbors of his while he was a kid. Jordan, who was two years older than him, was a child on the same block as him. Um, remembers him, remembers Ellis, as a small, mean preteen who attacked neighborhood kids and beat them up. He was troubled then. He did everybody. He beat them up. He terrorized everyone. That's a quote from Jordan. There's also quotes from neighbors who said that um, they would avoid walking past Ellis's house while he was a kid just to avoid him. Or if they had to go past his house, they would run as fast as they could just because he would always come out and bully people. He was that kind of a kid. Obviously, this pattern of behavior was seen from an early age. I think he was he was already charged with attempted murder at 14. I think we need to talk a little bit about, you know, what was going on in Milwaukee at this time. You know, you're talking about the 1960s in Milwaukee. We're talking about, and and his his parents came from the South, right? His parents came from Mississippi, where we had. So in, in, in the North at this time, there was a huge manufacturing boom, right? It was the Rust Belt, right? Pennsylvania to Ohio, Northern Indiana, Michigan, Northern Illinois, Wisconsin. So a lot of people from the South, and happened a lot of them happened to be African-Americans because they came up here for jobs. And these were decent paying jobs. They weren't highly skilled jobs, but they were decent paying jobs. So in the 50s and 60s, a lot of people from the South, just like Walter Ellis's family, came up to this area to work in these manufacturing jobs. And this is a big family. As we said, it's the two parents. Six kids. And six children, yeah. They needed some kind of income just to for the everyday necessities, you know? Right. And this this these jobs provided that. You had it you were able to to make a living on one income and raise a family. And these were good, decent paying jobs. So, and these were, these were middle-class neighborhoods and these manufacturing positions were highly sought after and it, it created, it supported lots of families during this time. The problem was in the 1980s, late seventies, early eighties, that manufacturing boom burst and those jobs went away. They went to Mexico, right? They went overseas to China. Those manufacturing jobs 
left. And you could, those, you know, and today, here we are in 2022, those manufacturing plants are still there. Those houses are still there. They're boarded up. Those manufacturing plants are abandoned buildings now. Those middle-class neighborhoods that these people were living in when they worked there are run-down, abandoned neighborhoods now. Right. You ever been to Gary, Indiana, Mickey? Right. I have. That's where Michael Jackson grew up in similar situation. Lots of siblings, tiny little house. Right. And now when you go there, everything's abandoned. I mean, there's still people living in the neighborhood, but any commercial buildings are just abandoned and have been for years. To, to the point, a lot of the anger and rage comes from all this. You have nothing. Doesn't excuse Walter Ellis's rage, even as a child, but... I'm sure he was neglected because the parents could only do so much. I mean, they had six kids and they had only so much income. But, I mean, even with the Jacksons, you've heard about abuse. There's anger and there's rage that goes on when you just can't make ends meet. All right. The, the, the remnants of those jobs, the remnants of that manufacturing boom of the 50s and 60s is still visible. Again, you go to Gary, Indiana, Mansfield, still. Ohio, Janesville, right? Racine, Kenosha, the old Rust Belt towns and what it, what happened when those jobs left obviously it creates these huge pockets of concentrated poverty so it, it creates this concentrated poverty and now you're just trying to survive right and so now in the 70s you have the drug culture coming in you have gang culture coming in and and ellis was in a gang i think it was called the, the brothers of the struggle you have prostitution sex working so you have these people doing these things in these rundown neighborhoods that used to be great middle-class neighborhoods, and now they're just trying to find ways to survive. Now, obviously, like Mickey said, this doesn't create Walter Ellis. Poverty doesn't create that. It's one factor in a whole lot more. Because most people either overcome it or they live in that strife without becoming serial killers, of course, but it is a factor. But one thing it does do, it, it can create the fact that someone can be criminally charged 10 times from 1981 to 1998. And just keep getting away with it. Right, just basically disregarded. Because crime becomes normalized. So Walter Ellis, ever since he's a kid, he's bullying kids as a kid. He gets charged for attempted murder at 14. He gets off on that. And he just 12 times yeah. criminally charged. And like you say, one of them for beating up his girlfriend with a hammer, he was in for five years. So he was, I don't know about how how much of Ellis's family and his upbringing we other than him being a wayward child, clearly. Right. How much we really know about that. And a lot of times this stuff wouldn't be documented because he is, he ended up being what he's being. But often a bully has been bullied. So as I mentioned, with these serial killer types and even rapists, which they're the same kind of people who are, if they're capable of that, they're capable of just horrible things. They learned it somewhere. I I mean, there's something some people might say you're born evil, but I, I truly believe it's more of about environment and being you're around people that are violent and teaching you these techniques techniques and, and these horrible ways and of dealing with whatever it is they're dealing with. Most of the time, these guys were neglected physically, verbally, abused. I mean, horrific things have been done to them to be able to ca cause them to go this haywire. So... That doesn't justify anything because a lot of people who have been through those situations do overcome them and become better people as a result, but often they do not. They just repeat the path that they're on. They repeat the patterns that they've learned, and unfortunately this is where it happens, and, and it keeps going on. You think there, there's got to be something in their background, and I, obviously it is historically with serial killers and people who do horrible things like this. 
something happened, either a, a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events that, you know, kind of changes their psychological profile. Right. Because you know? if it's a one time temporary insanity kind of situation, it, that might be okay. They lost it. But these, this, they're called serial killers, meaning there's a series. So they've just broken down at some point. There, there's something wrong with their their philosophy, the way they look at things, or maybe their chemical imbalance in their in their you know neurological system. But something's gone wrong, and like you say, a lot of these guys they're they're underdeveloped um, physically, but often they've learned these traits in their home or around other people, and this is what happens, unfortunately. Yeah, if you you know, obviously, what we know about famous serial killers, you know, if you look at people like Richard Ramirez and their backgrounds and their upbringings, Bad. obviously not to excuse what they run into. A lot of people are in terrible upbringings and turn out to be good people. Right, they overcome it. But you know, when when you suffer abuse at this level, it changes you. It changes your physiology. It changes your 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 makeup. And there's a lot of, you know, there's really no way it can't. And we're not saying, we don't know, uh, you know, the, the, the research into Ellis on the surface there in terms of his family um, is not there. No. You know, we was he abused as a child? Like Mickey said, I bet you he was. Or he saw people in direct vicinity to where he was being raised doing it to other people and he learned it that that's the way it's, it should be done. True. You know, there's there's nothing again on the surface. There's nothing in his family makeup that says that um, he was abused or anything by his family members, by his father that we know of. Um, so but there's not, maybe other relatives sure, or neighbors or somebody. We're not know. specifically pointing the finger at anybody here. But when somebody grows up to do these these things, these terrible things to people, and obviously, in, in in a very frustrating thing about Ellis after he was captured is that he never spoke. He never talked to anybody. You know, a lot of these serial people, these serial killers, they're so grandiose, right? right? They just want everybody to know what they did, and they kind of relish. They're proud of it. BTK, you know, they they kind of relish in, let me tell you what I did to these people. He wasn't like that. He's kind of a different, right? right? He's kind of a different breed that way, where investigators could get nothing out of him. He wouldn't speak. You can't find a quote from him today. You look at the research of Walter Ellis. You, you try to find a quote from this guy. You can't find it. He said nothing at his final hearing. He said nothing to the families. So there's a lot of speculation as to what was going through his head or what caused him to be what he was, but it, none of it comes from the horse's mouth. And I think, you know, I think that's that stunts a lot of the talk about him too is we don't know much about this guy other than what he did. Right. Other than the public record that says he was arrested and incarcerated a bunch of times and he killed a bunch of people, all public record, we don't know much more about this dude and, and why he turned in to what he did. So it just and, comes down to typical human behavior and, and unfortunately so many other cases where people have done these similar horrific acts. I would say 99% of the time something they they learned these horrible acts from somewhere and and like you say sometimes it's there might be uh, underdeveloped like mentally or physically because um, a lot of them like attached earlobes I mean even things like that that they seem to have a lot in common uh, it's so some of it's genetics 
or, you know, lack of development physically, or maybe just being abused to the point where your brain doesn't function as well as it should. But a lot of it is environment too, I believe. No question about it. And, and, you know, again, when we talk about Milwaukee at that time and the concentrated poverty that he, that he grew up in, you know, not a lot of serial killers come from, you know, upper class no. backgrounds. Well, there's, there's some, there are of course. Some. There's always going to be But for the most part, you, you, he, you see this, this history coming from um, places that don't have a lot. And again, these are the unintended, unintended consequences we have as a society um, that create these people. It's not a societal excuse. That's not what I'm talking about. But when something that seems so unrelated, like jobs leaving, like a federal bill moving manufacturing jobs to Mexico, or a corporation moving jobs elsewhere, obviously that creates and that that affects people, right? right? And, you know, when when there's hundreds of people working at a factory and now they no longer have that job, creates a lot of things that we don't really need to get into now, but the specifics are pretty, you know, you know what they are. We've kind of covered it. And it, it, it turns into these unintended consequences of these beings that were created, which are not always in our best interest. Well, and I mean, I don't want to focus on race too much, but the African-American serial killer is much less, it's much more rare. Typically they're white. So this this guy, again, not knowing for sure what caused him to, to become this monster, it, it it's different just because of that alone. Like you say, most serial killers throughout history have been Caucasian or white, so... That just is another factor that makes this a little different than than typical cases where they kind of kind of get to the bottom of who this person was and why they were that way. In 1992, he was sent to a halfway house, a halfway house for for federal prisoners on North Seventh Street in Milwaukee. Now it was, you know, I don't want to say if it was it was a lockdown facility, but was it, you know, halfway house is kind of an outdated term too. This is what all these people used to call. It's more of a transitional living. I think we we refer to it today. But that's what they called them back sure. then. Sure, they were you know they were halfway houses, unquote, right. is what they were. And he and he lived there. Um, and these you know they they could leave for work, they could leave to go to school, they could leave to go to church, but they needed passes. You couldn't just leave whenever you wanted to. You needed to have passes to get out, and you had to log out. So when Ellis went to this halfway house in 1992, he recognized a staff member from somebody that he was in prison with in Green Bay. You know, and this this staff member kind of told Ellis that there is a certain system there where the residents were bribing the staff to get out and leave these these halfway houses without logging out. You know, so they would leave and nobody would know they were gone. And on the night of November 27th, 1992, Ellis left the facility, never logged out. Irene Smith was found dead the next day, right about where Walter Ellis's house was. And then in December of that year, he walked away from the house. He simply left and never came back. So then he was arrested, right? He basically eloped from a transitional living house run by DOC. So they found him and they arrested him. So they t- so Ellis told the police what was going on in this house. And they basically brought him on as an informant. <laughs> and they put surveillance around this house and, and, and found out that Ellis was telling the truth. Yeah, this is really happening. So he became a, a bit of an informant for the Milwaukee Police Department. It's almost like he's hiding in plain sight. Right. I mean, because he's not even straying far, far from the neighborhood when he does get back out and start killing again, he's doing it right there where he's been doing it the whole time. So because of this, because he, he tells them that this stuff is going on at this transitional living house and they find out that he was telling the truth, 
they basically cut bait with him and told him to go free and said that he wouldn't be charged with anything that happened at the house, not even leaving it. So the following year, he was charged with beating a girlfriend with a screwdriver. A screwdriver. You can do a lot of damage with a screwdriver. Charges were dropped. No explanation. The next year, he beat the same girl, the same girlfriend, and choked her out to unconsciousness. Again, charges are dropped. No explanation. The following year, he was arrested for robbery, assaulting an officer, all smorgasbord list of stuff, <laughs> all the, resulting in, in minimal repercussions, if any at all. Right. Not the best guy, but yeah, not getting much punishment as a result. So in 1998, what, what Mickey had alluded to before, he was charged with beating, a, this, this was a different girlfriend, but he was charged with beating her with a hammer. And doctors needed 52 stitches and staples to close the gash in her head. And for that, which to me should have been an attempted murder charge, right? Yeah. That's, for that, he was sentenced to five years. And that's a tool you use for construction. You're going to do some damage. Right. He got five years in prison for that, and he actually served three. And that was the 1998 to 2000 stint that he did in prison that he, according to the state, gamed the system and never got his DNA sampled. So now, in, while he was in prison at this time, Frederick Bonds, who was another cellmate of his, said that Ellis was upset when he learned that they were going, they were collecting DNA. And he admitted in 1998 to Bonds that he did kill these women and that it, quote, turned him on to beat and choke women, unquote. You know, this testimony used against him by a former cellmate, Frederick Bonds. We'll see a theme coming up of police using testimony, as we heard before, from sketchy people. So while he's, you know, committing these crimes and basically getting off scot-free by the Milwaukee Police Department. He's earning confidence for one thing. He thinks he can do anything. Irene Smith, Karen Kilpatrick, Joyce Mims were all killed within this time period and dumped within blocks of his house. All in all, when he was finally sentenced to what was going to put him away for life, it was seven consecutive sentences for the slaying of seven women without the possibility of parole. What they wanted, what his lawyer was was initially asking for is, he, he was charged in the murders of seven women initially, um, and his his lawyer wanted a separate trial for all seven of those murders. Because obviously they're thinking that, it, you know, chances of finding a guilty verdict on all seven of those murders probably are a lot lower than if they were just all tried in one trial. But the judge denied that, and he was charged, um, you know, it was it was going to be one trial for all seven women. And then he wound up pleading no contest to the seven deaths of the women, which, like Mickey said, gave him seven consecutive life sentences with no possibility of, of parole. Now, he did kill 10 people that we know about. Yeah. Right? And there's, so there's still three people that he was never charged in their murder. Jessica Payne is one who we had talked about earlier because when Shantae Ott was put away for life for that murder and he was let out by the first court of appeals, based on Ellis's DNA being found in pain, uh, you know, prosecutors' plan at that time, what they said was to retry him. The, the, the first court of appeals didn't say Ott was innocent. They just said that he deserved a, a, a new trial. Right. And prosecutors said that they would probably retry him. Well, they never did, clearly, because there was no way you were going to get reasonable doubt when a serial killer's DNA is in the victim. But as you said, there are still people who 
believe that it was still on. Well, which, just the prosecutors just, of that time because they're trying to save face. Right. They don't want to be admitting they're wrong. But The problem is we have two other of Ellis's victims here, Karen Kilpatrick and Marietta Griffin, both of whom had other people the police department tried to pin these murders on. By bullying or no. intimidation tactics. Marietta Griffin, again, 39. She was found in 1988 strangled among abandoned houses. 1998? 1998. Yeah. William D. Avery was actually tried and convicted of her death. Again, in, in, in 2005, William Avery was sentenced to 40 years for the murder of Marietta Griffin. No relation to Stephen. This is right. an African-American no, no relation, No relation to Stephen. Um, but again, we, we have a man who was tried and convicted of the murder of a woman that Ellis wound up committing. And again, this was evidence, no physical evidence. The evidence was garnered from a former cellmate saying that Avery confessed to him in prison. It's ridiculous. That so this is now two, right? Right. I mean, when that's all you're going by is, and I don't mean to imply that these people are not human beings. We're all human beings. This is another convict whose story is being used to convict an innocent person. I mean, that's all they had. It just seems ridiculous. They didn't even really have that because in this issue, in this situation as well, Avery said he never said those things to the inmate, and the inmate later recanted, right, saying so, that it was coerced testimony, and another court agreed with him. There's a chance that these people are shady and sketchy if they're convicts, so maybe they'll have the ability to lie, and that's what happened. So again, in May, tw- uh, May 24th, 2010, William Avery was ordered released from prison after serving five years when DNA from Ellis was found on the victim. And then we have Karen Kilpatrick, 34 years old, found in 1994, nude, strangled in a garbage dump. Now, they put her live-in boyfriend on trial and try to pin that murder on him. Curtis McCoy. Curtis McCoy. And they had a five-year-old. They had Karen Kilpatrick's five-year-old daughter testify in court in which she said she saw her parents, which would be Curtis McCoy and Karen Kilpatrick, arguing and that her dad got a knife and then he saw her dad carry her mother's body out with blood dripping from the body and the knife. This is a five-year-old. Curtis McCoy was found not guilty. Now again, we have obvious coerced testimony from Sam Hathaway regarding Jessica Payne. We have obvious coerced testimony from William Avery's case regarding Marietta Griffin. And now they went on the testimony of a five-year-old girl. And and children are often more candid than adults, but she probably doesn't even understand what it is she was talking about. So in all three of these cases, not to undermine the ability and and intelligence of any of these um, people that were giving these stories, but one was cognitively and physically disabled, another was an inmate, and another was a five-year-old. Who was extremely... Influential. Right. And easily coerced. Well, the one, the the convict is easily going to influence people with his lies, possibly, as it's what happened. And the other two were possibly easily intimidated human beings just because of their situation and circumstances. Just, it's crazy. You know, so it's just obviously we have a rush to judgment here. Right. And three of ten, and and this is not coincidental, ten dead bodies, three of them. They charged and actually convicted another African-American man 
with no zero evidence. No DNA. Zero physical evidence and coerced testimony to put them away. Right. And this isn't just conjecture, right? I mean, William Avery was awarded $1 million from being wrongly convicted. Ashante Ott was awarded $6.5 million by a court of law, which this is not taken lightly, right? They just don't award money. So they're not saying that he was just wrongly convicted. They were intentionally wrongly convicted with fake evidence. Right. That's a court of law saying this. This isn't, you know, Shante Ott saying this. This isn't just William Avery saying this, who's passed now. Seven and a half million dollars combined because of bullshit testimony. So, you know, we have, before Ellis was even caught, quotes from family members of victims saying that this has gone on too long. Why is this person not being brought to justice? This is an obvious serial killer. Again, this is the, 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 the neighborhood and the, the family members saying this stuff. This is an obvious serial killer. Why isn't this being taken seriously? And the longer it goes, the more they're going to get pissed off and they're going to start talking and the public outrage is going to get bigger and bigger, of course, which is why they don't ever want to address a serial killer as it is. But at some point, you need to recognize what it is and do something. So there's a quote from Sheila Farrier, who was one of Ellis's victims. Uh, victims, her daughter, Shannon Farrier, saying, quote, they just figured there were a lot of black women who got killed and they didn't put a lot of effort into finding the killer, unquote. And there's also, you know, which I find compelling, Laverne McCoy, no relation to Curtis McCoy, a retired sergeant on the Milwaukee Police Department for 25 years, quote, they are forgetting that crimes are being committed and this person is continuing to do this because of our attitudes about the victim. Attitudes about the victim. How did they refer to prostitutes, according to Laverne McCoy? Quote, crack whores. Period, unquote. And they don't even use the word prostitute anymore. They'd rather call them sex workers. But there's multiple factors. It's And speculation that because they're African-American and because they were sex workers that they were just being disregarded and nobody was too concerned with their deaths it just seemed it just seems like you know this has been this had been going on for 21 years again there was rumblings from the neighborhood from the residents that th- there this is this is a serial killer these are all happening in the same place 21 years there was no progress made on a on a perpetrator until it seems like they got serious right created a task force brought in a lieutenant that kind of knew what he was doing and boom Within days, within a month at least. You know, there's also the 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 media coverage at the time is also pretty compelling. I I don't want to say compelling; it's also pretty um, telling. The attitude, again, the attitude towards the victims. September nineteenth, two thousand nine, from the AP, in an article about the police pretty much patting themselves on the back for finally solving this case. Hmm. Quote: Investigators believe eight victims were prostitutes who were strangled, and one was a runaway whose throat was cut. No names. No names of any victim. Just the fact that they were, quote, prostitutes. Statistics, basically. December 24th, 2009, in an article about Ellis, this is when he wanted, uh, basically he wanted all seven women tried separately. All seven victims were strangled, some with a rope or clothing. One was also stabbed. The police say all were prostitutes. No names. Jessica Police, Payne, as we 
established probably wasn't a prostitute. Right. She was a runaway, but I mean, who and knows in for sure. The next article, May twentieth, two thousand nine, in a you know, an article um, that's kind kind of tying all these together. Finally, again by the AP, DNA quote DNA evidence tied the deaths of six women, five of them prostitutes, to one person. No names. Just the fact that five of them were prostitutes. Like they're not even people then. And then it went on to name one victim. It did name Jessica Payne, 16 years old. But then it sure made a, made a point to say she was not a prostitute, quote, but a runaway involved in drug use and sales, police said, unquote. So there, there just seems to be, maybe this is just my take on it. I don't know. If you people disagree with me, feel free to let me know. But it sure, it sure seems that there's a, an effort here, a coordinated effort. Maybe it's not even an effort. Maybe it's just done without even thinking. They to, don't even realize to dehumanize these victims. Right. Here. They're not. And I mean, I've read extensively about serial killers. A lot of these guys would target um, sex workers, prostitutes, because that is the underlying mentality or outlook on people in that industry or whatever. You know, people who use a lot of drugs or sell their bodies for money are often considered subhuman or you know second class citizens. So. A lot of these guys will find them as targets because they'll get away with it. And I think Mickey and I, you know, just for the record, I think we're two of the biggest, cool back-the-badge people there are. You know, and all right. this, obviously, we live in a very heightened, divisive moment here with um, police and African Americans. I don't need to go into all that. We um, all know that. Everybody's aware of it. But, you know, when you when you look into this stuff, this, this isn't ancient history here. This is 2009. Right. And, you know, you kind of see where the roots of this stuff is. And, you know, when they when they do talk about the victims, you know, I don't want to say no article mentioned the victims. Some of them did. Well, yeah, we found was, their names. It's about 90% to 10% they don't. But there right. are obviously articles out there that do mention them. And, right. and there, you know, some of them even had photos, right? And some. And their and, photos are... Mugshots. Mugshots. That's all. It, and, and any information that we did have, we already went over, and there wasn't a, lo, a whole lot else describing who these people were or where they came from. Now, I know today we have Facebook and stuff where you pull stuff out of, you know, and you, you print that as the photograph. But before that, news agencies, journalists went to the family, and they say, hey, do you have a photo of your loved one that we can put in our paper here? And the family would then give them a photo. These people didn't do that. They put their freaking mugshot after they called them a prostitute in the paper. And then they went on to something else. And we wonder why it took 21 years for this to be solved. And I mean... It's not rocket science. As far as where he ended up, and he was basically, he was initially held at Dodge Correctional Institution in Wapun for assessment and evaluation, as they called it. From there, and this was pretty quickly on in the first year he was um, incarcerated, um, from there, he was transferred to Wisconsin Secure Pro- Program Facility in Boscoville, Wisconsin, which I've never heard of. Boscoville, yeah. Boscoville. And then finally, his final residence was 2011. He finally was transferred to Maximum Custody Unit at South Dakota State Penitentiary under an in- interstate agreement where, at the age of 53, he ended up dying of natural causes on Sunday, December 1st, 2013. Sioux Falls, South Dakota Hospital, which is not far from the facility, so... That's how his life... So he was transferred to another federal prison, and, and he had, it seems like that was diabetes. He passed away from complications of diabetes. Right. Funny thing about Boscobel, completely off subject here, there's a hotel in Boscobel that um, John Kennedy, John and 
Jackie Kennedy stayed at while John Kennedy was running for president. He was campaigning in Boscobel, and he stayed at this hotel. And legend has it that that is the hotel in Boscobel where John Kennedy Jr. was conceived. Due to legend, obviously there's no way of right. knowing that. <laughs> If there is, I would like to find out how. Right. But that is, uh, you know, the claim to fame, I think, of Boscobel is that is where uh, it's claimed that John Kennedy Jr. was conceived. That's a better claim to fame than having held Walter E. Ellis at some point, I no, suppose. No question. So, yeah, the Milwaukee Northside Strangler. Again, you know, again, the, the victims here are the story. I think the victims and the trouble that the Department of Corrections had implementing a program that was supposed to help in the situation. And uh, sadly, for at least one victim that we know of, didn't. And it was, uh, you know, too late coming. And that's too bad. Well, and it's too bad that it took all this, but like we said before, at least they did a clean slate inspection investigation of how the things were being done. And because of this horrible monster, things were finally corrected because who knows how, how much longer would have gone on if this hadn't brought light to the subject. So from everything bad comes good, I suppose, and, and you know, if you want to look at it that way. And the victims, again, who, who you know, in my opinion, were looked past um, by both police and the, and the media. I don't think there's any doubt about it, what, what the factors truly were, but it's they were disregarded. You know, it wasn't until Ellis was basically put away and basically his last few court hearings that the family members were actually were even mentioned. You know, these were people. These were not sex workers. That didn't define them. You know, at these hearings, Joyce Mim's brother, Florence McCormick's daughters, Sheila Farrier's daughter, Arethian Stokes' mother, Irene Smith's children and siblings, dozens of family members were present at these hearings. And even if these women were estranged from their family, which tends to be the case a lot of times, that doesn't mean their family didn't care about them. It doesn't mean they wanted to find out that their their loved one was slayed in this horrific way. So, I mean, they're human beings, right. as we keep it, saying. There's also a lot of denial from the family members that these were sex workers. Right. That, you know. They just didn't want to believe it. Maybe. Right. Or or maybe, you know, as in some cases where the police had said they're going to turn every stone to find the killer, um, these family members oftentimes were never spoken to by the police, ever. Hmm. Not one time. That's ridiculous. So again, we have a narrative here that's created by opinion, not necessarily fact. And we went 21 years of terrorizing a Milwaukee neighborhood when um, maybe it didn't need to be that way. And. I'm sure things are cleaned up, but I'm not sure that mentality on people in that lifestyle has changed or evolved all that much since, because like you said, it wasn't that long ago. This is 2009. It's almost like yesterday. Yeah. And again, how many people have ever heard of Walter E. Ellis, much less these other poor victims that were convicted falsely because of well, just things not being done correctly? He did exist, and the, the his victims that he snuffed off the earth existed and so did their families and they're still here today and they deserve to be remembered. Amen, brother. <laughs>